Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Natasha Hall about the recent earthquake in Turkey and Syria and what it means for aid in the Northwest. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Natasha Hall is a senior fellow with the Middle East program at CSIS. She spent more than 15 years working on humanitarian relief in the field around the world, spent a lot of time in Syria, and has some special perspectives that we're delighted to bring to you. Natasha, thanks for joining us on Babel today. Thanks for having me, John. Southeastern Turkey and northwestern Syria suffered from this earthquake on February 6th. Let's talk about the different Syrian communities that are affected by this. The largest impact of the earthquake, the center of the earthquake, is in southeastern Turkey, which has millions of Syrians. Can you describe, you've been there, you've met a lot of these communities. How large a Syrian refugee community is there in southeastern Turkey, and how are they affected by the earthquake? The ramifications of this earthquake in southeastern Turkey are really devastating. Places like Hatay province or Hatay city, which is a beautiful old city, have just been completely leveled. Gaziantep, which is a hub for the cross-border humanitarian response into Syria, as is Hatay, was also very devastated. So you not only had thousands of Syrian refugees that were killed in these areas, but you had a lot of the response devastated as well, the cross-border response. So In the early days, actually, right after the earthquake, the only thing really going across the border into northwest Syria in terms of any kind of anything was actually the bodies of Syrian refugees, thousands of them. So let's go across the border into the parts of Syria controlled by the government that are affected. The UN estimates that about 6 million people in government-controlled areas are affected. 200,000 people in the area around Aleppo alone have been made homeless. What kind of aid are they getting and where is it coming from? Yeah, so most of the UN agencies had always had a presence in Damascus and in government-controlled areas. So there was a significant humanitarian response there that never really stopped. But in addition to that, we saw about 25 countries directly bringing in aid through planes, to various air bases and airports throughout government-controlled areas. You saw dozens of international search and rescue crews coming in. And most recently, you also saw the United States issue General License 23, which would allow for essentially all transactions related to earthquake recovery. Earthquake recovery is not defined, but all transactions related to earthquake recovery that would have been hampered by sanctions. So you're seeing a significant amount of assistance going into these government-controlled areas. Do you think that the license has an impact on government-controlled areas where there are people who are holding back from providing aid that are now more willing to? So it's interesting. When I talk to NGOs that are working out of Damascus, they are still unsure as to how this changes how they do operations because the general license, as OFAC or as Treasury has put it, is necessarily vague. So it's unclear, but certainly I think things like reconstruction 
might be on the agenda. Certainly, I think that they're already thinking about repairing sewage pipes and things like that. But those were things that you could do prior to the earthquake as well. So I think it remains to be seen. It's meant to make things easier, but it remains to be seen, I think, how that affects the actual humanitarian agencies that probably should have had waivers to begin with. But I think that in this case, it probably points to certain elements of reconstruction that might have not been allowed beforehand. The third area I want to talk about is areas of Syria the government doesn't control, areas that are controlled by groups opposed to that government. How much do we know about the effects of the earthquake on the population there? Yeah, proportionately speaking, this was the heaviest hit area. It was the closest to the epicenter and therefore the hardest hit. But in addition to that, this is an extremely vulnerable community. It's about four to five million people, depending on the estimates that you use. But about two thirds of that population have been forcibly displaced from other parts of Syria. So I think Saved of Children has said that about 80% of the population has been displaced between six to 25 times. So this is a population that has lost its assets over and over again. In addition to that, as you said, this is an area that has governance, but it is haphazard governance in certain areas. It's not standardized. And certainly, not a situation in which you would have building regulations, for example. And so you had towns that were completely leveled to the ground. Entire families just wiped out in a moment. And so the results of the earthquake have been particularly profound in these areas. And that was worsened by the fact that you didn't really see any of the assistance that you saw getting into government-controlled Syria or Turkey in the days after the earthquake. So there were mothers, fathers hearing the screams of people under the rubble and they couldn't rescue these people. And there was no search and rescue crews that came in. There was no additional kind of earthquake related assistance or support. So you have a very troubling situation in a place where honestly, it's quite difficult to sustain the assistance that is needed for the acute response, but also for the long-term recovery. And that was an issue before the earthquake as well. So part of the problem is this area is generally controlled by Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, HTS, the Syrian Liberation Organization, which the United States, Canada, the UK all consider to be a terrorist organization. How does that affect the strategy of the international donors toward Northwest Syria? Yeah, that is one of the factors. Actually, another factor is the fact that the other part of that enclave is run essentially by Turkish-backed armed groups. And so that has actually scared off quite a few donors as well. So it's not just HTS, but just to give you a sense, most of the stabilization aid, if not all of the stabilization aid, was withdrawn once HTS took control of all of Idlib back in 2019. And so that essentially means that there's no support for governance in these areas. And so you're seeing sort of the ramifications of that to date. What are the ramifications of HTS running this large government, as you said, more than 4 million people? In the case of an area that is controlled by an internationally recognized government, like Turkey, even like the Syrian regime, you see the ability of those regimes to bring in aid from all types of other governments right away. Whereas our international system in general is less able to handle any area that is controlled by a non-state armed group. 
And so it's difficult for a group like HTS, which has the sort of Syrian salvation government as its civilian apparatus, call for aid from every corner of the world and actually get anything from any countries. And so that's problematic as well. But in addition to that, I think a lot of donors, because of their risk averseness to working in an HTS controlled area, are very heavily dependent on the UN to deliver that aid. The UN provides a bit more cover in terms of, I think, legal risks. But unfortunately, that cross-border response, that UN cross-border response, has been threatened every few months at the Security Council by Russia. That happens to be the Syrian regime's, obviously, stalwart military ally. And the reason for that is, is simply because this is an area controlled by the opposition. And throughout the conflict, the Syrian regime and later Russia have tied a noose around these various opposition-controlled areas, impeding aid, delaying aid, ransacking aid convoys. And so this is just the last manifestation of that, essentially threatening to shut down this UN cross-border mandate every few months at the Security Council. I want to talk more about life under HT and what it means and what the U.S. is trying to do along with its partners in keeping this as a listed as a terrorist organization. It is an Islamist organization, a Salafi organization, some say a jihadi organization. What does that mean for people who live there? Are women oppressed? Is there widespread corruption, violence? How does it work for people who actually are living under HCS? I think in the case of all of the armed groups throughout the history of this war, all of them have blood on their hands. HTS in particular, in my interviews, has arrested and detained people for political reasons, also for pushing back on them when they want to interfere with aid, for example. That said, there are a lot of components of real governance that HTS actually undertakes. And what's interesting, especially in this earthquake, is to see the difference between the Turkish-controlled areas, and HTS areas. So HTS is actually a single governance entity. And that actually comes with benefits in terms of a standardized approach to the way that earthquake recovery is happening. Whereas in these Syrian National Army-controlled areas, so these are the Turkish-backed armed groups, it's just chaos. Because they don't get paid very much by Turkey if they get paid anything at all. So as with government-controlled areas where you have pro-regime militias that also aren't paid very much at all, they make money any way that they can. And so that leads to quite a lot of chaos in these areas. And we're seeing that in terms of the earthquake recovery too, where in government-controlled areas and in these areas, you immediately see things like tents being put on the marketplace, things like that. And you've written in your report that came out about a year ago in Rescuing Aid in Syria, you've written about how the cross-line aid, the aid coming from the government-controlled areas into rebel-controlled areas, often has the government skimming off it. There's all sorts of corruption on that side. Human Rights Watch also said that HTS is banning aid from coming from government-controlled areas, perhaps to stop that kind of skimming. So that leaves us with the only option being this cross-border aid coming through Turkey. How much is coming in? How much needs to come in? Yeah, I think the issue is not just the skimming, because I think 
A lot of journalists have asked me, why is HTS rejecting this aid and things like that? I think there's a broader problem with that being the story. I think that at the end of the day, cross-line aid is a political decision based on all of the other things that we just spoke about. It's not a part of the humanitarian response for a variety of reasons. It's a small fraction of 1% of the aid that goes cross-border. It is not implemented with those who are implementing aid on the ground. And it's only delivery, like the actual delivered physical aid in trucks, which is not all of the aid that goes into Northwest Syria. We're talking about salaries for doctors, for teachers. We're talking about water and sanitation programs, psychosocial programs. None of those things can be delivered cross-line. And so I think what I worry about when the conversation moves to cross-line, accusing HTS or whoever it happens to be of refusing cross-line aid, that it's missing the point that is a political decision that's being used under sort of the guise of humanitarianism. And that's a significant problem because especially now, we have actually three border crossings that the UN could use for the next three months at least. And so in response to your question about what needs to get through, we know what needs to get through in terms of temporary shelters for the acute response. We need fuel and machinery equipment to do rubble removal and things like that. But what I get worried about is the longer term response, because we weren't really doing a great job of that even before the earthquake. As I mentioned in another piece that I had written, there were about 400 medical, educational, water and sanitation facilities that had been suspended last year due to funding cuts. And so after this earthquake, you had doctors at the front of hospitals just literally picking who was going to live or die because they just didn't have the equipment and they didn't have the personnel. And that leaves these areas vulnerable to the existing crisis, long-term crisis, but especially acute crises that we will necessarily see. I think that's the biggest concern because you still have over a million people living in informal tents in an area that goes through really rough winters and flooding every year. That is not what tents were meant for. And so I think that what I get concerned about is whether or not the international community, the major donors, are going to use this as an inflection point to realize that this area will likely need a longer-term response, something that isn't just emergency aid, to make it more resilient in the future. So let me ask you about the long-term response, long-term consequences. I've seen you quoted a number of places, and you've spoken to a lot of journalists the last couple of weeks, about how the Assad regime is instrumentalizing earthquake response to drive its broader strategy. How is it doing that? You immediately saw the regime calling for lifting sanctions, sanctions which have been contentious issue for a long time, I think, for many sides, mainly because it does not seem to be affecting the regime itself and seems to be affecting the people. But I think the larger issue is not necessarily that the regime is using this moment for its advantage or for its interests. I think the larger story is how many countries were right there, ready to accelerate that trend of normalization or at least grease the wheels. There were a lot of countries that were ready to jump on board if they hadn't already. And so I think that's a larger issue, showing that a lot of members, at least of the international community, want to move on. And so they might very well use the earthquake as that motivation to move on. 
I think that the issue here is that in my conversations over the past couple of weeks, it doesn't seem like there's any guardrails or any give and take with that conversation. And so you already see soldiers restricting who gets aid. There's lots of stories about that already. Obviously, aid being sold in the marketplace, which is very typical. Iranian-backed militias re-entering Aleppo city, a city that they had besieged, but this time giving out aid. And so you see a situation where you're going to have tens of millions of dollars funneled into a disaster site. In this case, one that has a lot of other issues at hand. And if there aren't really good guardrails for that, it's unclear if the people in need will get the assistance that they need. But it's also unclear as to whether giving away any kind of leverage during this period of time is going to lead to greater stability for Syria or the region. How are Iran and Turkey instrumentalizing disaster relief? In terms of Iran, this is kind of what they do through proxy militias in other parts of the region as well, where they see a gap in governance, where they see a gap in assistance, they try to fill the gap. And so what we've been hearing is that Iran has been trying to make some headway in parts of Syria that it had failed to do earlier in the conflict, and doing that through humanitarian assistance or the guise of humanitarian assistance. In terms of Turkey, I'm not sure yet. I do know that there have been reports that aid or recovery or search and rescue efforts have been diverted to people who are in a more powerful standing, for example, parliament members. But that remains to be seen. The devastation from the earthquake is sort of encompassing in this situation. But President Erdogan, in one of his initial speeches just after the earthquake, he primarily talked about finding dissidents than he did about earthquake recovery which is a disturbing manifestation. The United States has pledged $185 million for earthquake relief, some of it for the Syrian side, some of it for the Turkish side. What do you think the long-term goals the U.S. might advance through its earthquake response? How should the U.S. be thinking about this? One of the things that I wish I had seen is a use of drawdown authority or more bilateral assistance in Turkey, but also from Turkey through northwest Syria, for a whole host of reasons. One, because it's faster, and you can actually escalate a response really quickly. That's what the U.S. military did very well in Haiti. But also, it's necessary, because the U.N. cross-border response is under threat every few months. But the two additional crossings that have been approved by the Syrian government are for just for the next three months. So I think that This is a moment for donor governments, especially the United States, which has more of a capacity to do this. It relies a lot less on UN pooled funds than the other donor governments. So to really increase its bilateral response, especially in Northwest Syria, in terms of government controlled areas, and I think the larger conflict, I haven't seen a lot of thought to really monitoring how the earthquake recovery is undertaken in government-controlled areas. So we're already getting reports that the Syrian government is listing houses or buildings for demolition or evacuation as far south as Damascus countryside before damage assessments are really being done. 
That's concerning for a whole range of reasons, especially for a government like the United States that has said over and over again, as with its European partners, there will be no reconstruction before political transition. I think now it's probably more like regime behavioral change. But we certainly aren't going to see those changes if all of these things are happening and just this sort of torrential flood of aid without any kind of guardrails, any kind of assessment of whether or not this aid is doing harm on the ground to those who have already been marginalized throughout this conflict. And I've said this many times, but through more independent and systematic monitoring and evaluation of the recovery response, then donors could get together and actually unify to address some of the malfeasance that they see in government-controlled areas for the benefit of Syrians over the long term. Do you think that the U.S. government should use this as an opportunity to either set conditions for allowing recovery aid and reconstruction aid for the first time in government-controlled areas and or reconsider its relationship with HTS? So in both cases, I think that the United States and European governments can still operate through humanitarian agencies through the U.N., but they fund those humanitarian agencies in the UN. So they are sort of a step removed from having to engage fully with these actors. And I do think that they should have that distance until they've seen something more than what we've seen in terms of governance on both sides. But diplomacy is getting people to change their behavior, oftentimes by giving them something. Is this something that should be on the table that we might either delist HTS or we might allow reconstruction, moving beyond early recovery in Syria to actually helping Syria recover from the devastation of a long war if we see different behaviors on the part of the Syrian government. I've long made very forward-leaning recommendations on that, primarily because I've evaluated projects that are reconstruction as early as 2016. So I think the reconstruction is happening. They can call it whatever they want to call it. But I've seen buildings being rebuilt for humanitarian projects. And I think that with this general license, they've also said it will not be reconstruction, but I think it will necessarily be aspects of reconstruction as well. And so, again, I think that it's probably too soon to say you would re-engage or normalize with the regime because there's so many other issues at play. But it's unclear whether the Syrian regime needs normalized relations with a country like the United States at this juncture, or we even accept it at this juncture. I think that, no, most definitely they need assistance. About 90% of people across Syria are under the poverty line at the moment. That said, I think that there also really needs to be some robust reflection on what the limits of humanitarian assistance are. Humanitarian assistance is not meant to replace governance. It is a small fraction. It should be a small fraction of what gets a country back on its feet. And from what we've seen in terms of the various ways that the Syrian regime builds capital through Captagon and many other exploitive ways, and I think unless we see some movement on that, and I don't think that we will see movement on that unless there is some kind of engagement on the level of, you know, whether it's reconstruction or recovery or whatever it happens to be, 
I just, I don't see it moving in a positive direction because we've done this before in places that are less complicated, that have witnessed less severe war crimes than Syria. And it hasn't turned out well. And Lebanon and Iraq, so the east to the west, are pretty good examples of that. And I think once you get to that point where these actors are so heavily empowered, it's nearly impossible to turn back. Arguably, these things should have been happening much earlier on. But this is just another moment that the international community could take to make those positive moves. And I just hope that they're doing it with this sort of comprehensive outlook that there are things that need to change, right? That just funneling aid into these crisis zones is not necessarily going to solve the problems. And we see that with Haiti, which is still reeling from that earthquake in 2010. The reports of corruption, allegations, just devastated in spite of all of the aid that poured into that country. And so we really need to have a hard look at Syria when we're looking at earthquake recovery. It's not on the level that Haiti was, certainly, but certainly it's a time to really start thinking a bit critically about places like Syria or other places that sort of lack adequate governance but are faced with a natural disaster, because we see this over and over again. And we see people still devastated, instability reigning for the years after these natural disasters. So you've spoken to a lot of journalists in the last couple of weeks. It seems to me that the journalist's attention is already starting to wane. How much sustained attention do you think Syria is going to have in a month's time? You talked about how there are some really long-term trends that people need to seize on, but I'm not sure we're going to have much long-term attention. That's my biggest fear. I immediately had a UN official tell me we have a small window where they're going to be paying attention. And I think that's exactly right, because for all acute disasters, that tends to be what happens. And we forget about the 14-year-old kid that lost her leg and all of her family members and has witnessed nothing but this war. And I don't think that we can forget it, even if the media does, and necessarily will, because other stories will emerge. I think that the United States and others that have been interested in Syria and have given a tremendous amount of aid need to just ensure that aid is adequately dispersed in a way that doesn't promote further instability later down the line. When it comes to to conflicts or responses to natural disasters, prevention is a hell of a lot better, <laughs> excuse me, than having to respond to something that is much more dangerous later down the line. And we've seen that over and over again, even within the Syria conflict. So I think one has to wonder how far you can push a population. And I think that we've pushed this population to the point of really no return. And especially for Northwest Syria, this is a very resilient population, right? Like they have endured a lot. So I think if the international community is willing to come together and actually think about this area for a longer term range, I think that will infinitely help these people. It will help Turkey. It will help the region more broadly. And I think U.S. national interests over the long term as well. So if listeners want to help, what should they do? I think the first thing they can do is continue to show their interest with their governments here in the United States, with their congressmen, ensure that Syria remains front of center, front of mind, at least for the next few months of recovery, certainly. 
I think in general, supporting organizations that I've mentioned, local organizations that are the ones primarily delivering and implementing assistance on the ground in Syria is another thing that can be done. But I think for U.S. government officials, for European government officials, I've gotten a lot of questions in the past few days about instances of diversion or instances where the Syrian government has impeded aid, of which we are already anecdotally seeing a lot. It can't just be anecdotal. Like there needs to be a sort of a full throttled kind of effort to really monitor and evaluate this response for the benefit of Syrians on the ground. And I think until we see that, we will continue to see predictable crises emerge but also potentially black swan events that we never thought could in this sort of unstable soup that is Syria at the moment. Natasha Hall, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you for having me, John. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.